Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Today, we're talking to the Harvard economist and former US Treasury Secretary Larry Summers about the state of the economy and economic policymaking, and especially looking for his take on the spread of automation and the impact it could have on employment and the whole global economy. But first, we've got a report from one of Bloomberg's most experienced U.S. economy reporters, Craig Torres, who's based in Washington, D.C. He couldn't help noticing that despite all the talk of robots destroying jobs, the U.S. economy still seemed to be creating a lot of them. It made him want to see for himself how technology was affecting the world of work and what it might mean for the future of jobs. Real busy Monday or a Tuesday like today after a holiday, uh, 300 patients in a day okay. would be a sort of very busy Monday. Uh-huh. And if, uh, if it's a Sunday... I recently visited Washington Hospital Center, the biggest in the nation's capital, with an emergency room that handles 240 patients a day. I went there because I thought it would help us start to solve one of the big riddles in the U.S. economy today. Why have we been hiring so many people in recent years? Last year, the U.S. added 2.7 million jobs. That happened at a time when we hear a lot about artificial intelligence, robots, and humanless tasks in a variety of industries. I suspected that there was something about technology that was labor-intensive and labor-creating. I found it at Washington Hospital, which is part of MedStar Health, a big chain in the D.C. region. They found a technological solution that let them double the number of ER patients they could triage. It made doctors more efficient, but it also created the need for more jobs, techs and nurses to process the higher volume of patients. I met an ER doctor named Ethan Booker, who helped apply this technology with strong results. So, uh, how many patients do you see in emergency here every year? 87,000. 87,000 patients. That's a lot of humans in pain, one way or another. MedStar's emergency room has this role known as the PIT, or PIT. That stands for Provider and Triage. The PIT physician's job is to make a call on the condition of a patient rolling into the ER and get them routed into care. Do they have a broken bone or just a sore back? Imagine, however, trying to process more than 200 patients a day. Any ER is by definition somewhat chaotic with lots of urgency in the air, and distractions can be huge. You know, the patients came in, the nurse saw them, the doctor saw them, got their orders started. But that work over there, as you can imagine, kind of embedded in right in the front door of the emergency department was... It was an entire nine-hour shift on your feet. Mm-hmm. Um, there was tons of interruptions, uh, helping people with wayfinding, people coming back to you to kind of understand where they were in the process, that kind of stuff. So what they did was use technology to create a remote pit. I walk with Dr. Booker through a maze of hallways. He opens a door, and inside I see Dr. Jasmine Malik quietly using a headset to talk with a patient on the video monitor. 
It is only about a five-minute walk from the emergency room, but it is a world away. There are no patients on stretchers here. Nobody's bleeding. The remoteness isn't the only efficiency of this system. If the patient has been to the hospital before, Malik has a medical record in front of her. She can also order follow-on testing immediately with a click of a mouse. I talked to Booker about the difference between working downstairs versus here upstairs. In a nine-hour shift, going flat out on your feet the whole time, um, you might be able to get to 90 patients. Mm-hmm. Um, the peak speed that you can do on this is, is I've seen some hours where, patient, where physicians have processed 22 patients in an hour. 22 patients an hour? That would amount to around 200 patients during a nine-hour shift. More than double what a doctor on the ER floor could do. More patients passing through triage means the hospital needs to hire more people to process all of them. Here's Booker again. I think it's labor-enhancing. Labor-enhancing. We certainly didn't replace anybody. Okay. Um, and in places in which we were successful with this, there, there was a need for more labor. There is another myth to bust here, one that is also about technology and jobs. Very rarely does a company like MedStar buy a piece of technology off the shelf, plug it in, and turn it on. A complex organization like a healthcare system has to adapt tech to its own needs. And in healthcare, there is a very high bar for security. So for all the alluring stories about technology being instantly productivity-enhancing, It rarely is. It takes hours of human labor to configure it and make it safe. MedStar has a whole innovation institute that is always looking for ways to use technology to help doctors and patients. I spoke with an executive there named John Locke. This is how he describes that process. We have teams of people across that organization working on kind of the next five to ten years, and then how do we give people in a big health system, and we're talking about 30,000 plus people, a big organization, how do we give people room in that to actually experiment and build some of these things out? Is technology strangely labor intensive? Yes. Creating something new is full of dissonance. Uh, It's not smooth and easy. If it isn't smooth and easy, then why are millions of companies working so hard to put technology in place? I wanted to take that question to Lonnie Jaffe, a guy with a long career in technology firms who is now at Insight Venture Partners in New York. They invest about $20 billion, spread over 150 companies, many of them makers of software. In the technology industry, we see continuous, enormous levels of deflation at all times. Uh, So in 1981, the cost of a gigabyte of storage was something like $500,000 per gigabyte. And today, it's less than three cents per gigabyte. And it's hard to wrap our minds around that level of a price drop. (laughs) Uh, But if you are a user of technology like that, as the prices drop below certain thresholds, entirely new business models get unlocked that were not previously feasible. And those can uh, not just unlock new pools of revenue and opportunity with your end customers, it can also unlock new pools of labor. The interesting takeaway for me is that cloud computing is making it cheaper and easier to put powerful software into the hands of a lot of employees, 
wherever they are. Low-cost, pervasive technology might actually tilt the mix of capital and labor we need to produce GDP in favor of labor. That suggests America's tremendous job growth might not be such a riddle after all. But before ending my search, I wanted to explore how technology might be affecting another part of the economy that's been creating more jobs than most, the hotel sector. Well, how are you? I'm good. Good. Nice to meet Craig you. Craig Torres from Bloomberg. Nice to meet you. Nice Noel Eater. Noel Eater is the chief information and digital officer at Hilton, the hotel group. I met her at their headquarters in McLean, Virginia. Lodging is an incredibly labor-intensive industry. I have a son, a cousin, and a close friend in the business. And everything they tell me suggests that getting the customer experience just right is very human intensive. But Eater told me it was also a business in which technology could be truly transformational. I think what's possible with technology in for Hilton is nothing short of staggering. Okay. Um, Technology, in my mind, has yet to truly immerse itself into the integrated experience for customers in as profound a way as is available to us. Eater describes the options she wants to see widely available to hotel guests in a digital age, such as checking in on your smartphone app, which can also set your room temperature or order a meal before you've arrived. That personalized experience is only possible if customers share their preferences, which means Eater has to win their trust on the front of digital security, an area that also takes a lot of labor. The thing that we have to perfect is the ability for humans to interact around this technology so there isn't a stark contrast between the digital engagement and the human engagement. Uh, uh So that the front desk team member knows what you asked for within the application or in the message, et cetera. Uh and can respond above and around that. So technology can be labor-enhancing in a high-touch business like lodging, and there might also be a sweet spot when human labor and technology come together and employees are freed from rote tasks such as check-in and can use their time to tell you about a good lunch spot or maybe about a nearby music festival. Hilton's business is about people serving people. It is very much the culture of the business. It is very much the culture of the experience. And we believe that humans, I believe that humans provide that unique differentiation. It's the, it's the human connection based on empathy, really warmth and generosity that makes a hotel experience stand apart. So we are not designing technology to replace humans. Okay. Uh, That will not be Hilton's business, um, and I'm pretty happy about that. I happen (laughs) to like humans. (laughs) For Bloomberg News, I'm Craig Torres. Now, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by my friend and former boss, Larry Summers, the Harvard professor and former U.S. Treasury Secretary, who also served as the director of President Obama's National Economic Council. Larry, welcome to Stephanomics. Good to be with you, Stephanie. 
We have just heard from Craig Torres, who had a fairly upbeat view of the impact of new technology on jobs. And I know from talking to him that the reason that Craig got into this was that he'd just been looking week after week with the US very strong job growth. And as we know, going with that weak productivity growth. Um, But at the same time, as we've had all of this argument and and concern around technology and automation, and it, it just felt like it was going against the sort of robots are coming for your jobs rhetoric that we hear about so much. So where do you come out on this ongoing debate about the impact of technology on jobs? I think your reporter's more wrong uh, than right. Um, I take the long view. Uh, I was involved in discussions of automation when I was an undergraduate at MIT in the 1970s. And then we heard the view that Craig Torres takes that uh, technology would create more productivity and that would create more spending power and that would create more jobs and all would be well. Uh, When people were saying that in the 1970s, 5% of men between the ages of uh, 25 and 54 were not working. Now, about 13% of men between the ages of 25 and 54 are not uh, working. And so technology actually on net has led to a substantial amount of displacement. Whatever's happened in the last few years, I don't think proves that much. And by the way, since productivity growth has been very slow for the last few years, I don't think it's been a period of particularly active uh, technological change. So I don't think that proves very much. I think looking forward, we've got to recognize that almost any activity that can be routinized can be mechanized. And that has to put substantial pressure on many different job categories and many different people. Now, there'll certainly be some new jobs created and probably some of the new jobs that will be created will have high productivity and support high wages. But for people who are really set up to do routine work and not to do other work, uh, I think it's likely to be a very difficult period uh, going ahead. And do you think I mean, to defend Craig a little bit, of course, he's not claiming uh, that the overwhelming effect of technology um, will be positive for labor. He was just he was kind of highlight he's highlighting some examples where you could see uh, technology kind of complementing labor. And there's certainly people talk about these cases where now you will have, you know, there'll be more demand for the very human jobs and the very human jobs will be more prized because you have all this sort of technology supporting those human qualities. Your view is those will exist and maybe we'll have more of them down the road, but the elver, they're not going to be more than a small piece of the story in the sort of short run? Just, I take the long view. 5% of the people weren't working in the group where you'd expect everybody to be working, and then 13% of the people uh, weren't working, and it's been a pretty inexorable trend. You take that trend back to the 1940s, uh, the trend uh, is uh, even stronger. So I don't dispute the idea that there will be some sets of jobs that will become more productive and that there will be some jobs uh, created, you know, being an eBay merchant, being a Facebook programmer, building, uh, building sites. 
But I think the totality of it, and particularly for the people who are most on the margin of working versus not working, I think uh, it's likely to be difficult. You know, 20 years ago, the big change that was happening in the global labor market arguably was China and globalization, you know, was the was the arrival of, of the Chinese labor force, if you like, into the global economy. And I remember when I was studying at Harvard and elsewhere, there was a consistent underestimation of the impact that was going to have on the global labor market. Now we have all of this evidence from David Autor and all this other academic evidence about the, how that wave of competition from China cost jobs here in the U.S., and people didn't immediately bounce back, and the, the costs were, were concentrated in a way that theory doesn't predict. Now we have that data. How is it? Does it help us uh, be more aware of what's coming down the track with this new wave of technological change? Or do you think a whole lot of different lessons are going to come out of that? I'm not sure. I think the David Otter work that you refer to is about to be and is already being subject to a wave of revisionism. Uh, people are taking account of the extra exports as well as the extra imports. People are taking account of the fact that a lot of the goods that we import from China then become part of products that we sell that are cheaper because of the imports from products so China. So we import, so we use more people because we sell more of the product. People are taking account of the fact that the imports from China held the price level down, and that enabled the Fed to pursue easier policies. None of those effects were really contained in the David Autor research that's so frequently uh, cited. So I think that you're going to see some revisionism towards uh, blaming China rather less for the problems that have existed in the United States. Moving on from this, we should talk about you know where you think the U.S. economy is right now. I mean, there's a lot of debate about how much structural change there's been in, in the labor market and how much further unemployment can go. The recent Fed change in its attitude towards that, in a sense, you know, seemingly willing to give it more time um, before continuing to raise interest rates. Um, where do you stand on that? Do you think the Fed should be even slower, even more cautious? I'm glad to see the Fed embrace the kinds of ideas of secular stagnation that I've been talking about for some years now. I think they've recognized that in an economy where fundamentally there's a higher propensity to save than there used to be and a lower propensity to invest uh, than there used to be, interest rates that once would have been very stimulative now actually can be consistent with uh, contraction. And therefore, they've got to be very careful about overly contracting the economy. I think that's a good recognition by the Fed. It's also been good that the Fed has recognized that uh, inflation looks awfully quiescent and that the combination of no increases in the minimum wage in forever, huge restraints on union power, the ability of companies to outsource, 
more ruthlessly aggressive shareholders maximizing profits, all that has operated to put downwards pressure on wages. And ultimately, it's very hard to generate very much product price inflation without having wage price uh, inflation. And so I think Jay Powell's been in the right place on that uh, as well. I wish he'd gotten there before they raised rates um, in uh, December. And I wish the president wasn't making it harder to do the right thing by making doing the right thing look like it's a craven political act as he puts pressure on uh, the Fed. But I think the Fed has to do what's right, whether it makes politicians happy or whether it makes politicians unhappy. And on balance, I think the risks of excessive restraint on the economy are far greater than the risks of insufficient restraint. In addition to the considerations I already raised, uh, um, our goal in the United States is to have a 2% symmetric inflation target. Symmetric is an important word. It means that inflation is supposed to average 2%. Why well, I'd ask you the question, if after 10 years of recovery, when the unemployment rate is lower than it's been in 50 years, and we're in the 11th year of expansion, if that's not the time when we're going to have inflation above 2%, after 10 years when we've had it below 2%, when would such a time ever be? And so I think the credibility of the Fed with respect to an inflation target actually depends on its ability to generate a bit of acceleration of inflation and inflation expectations from here. I'm not sure they're going to be able to do it, but they should at least be caught trying. Larry Summers, thanks very much for being on Stephanomics. And maybe one of these days we'll, we'll get you back on the program. Good to be with you. So I'm joined now by one of our top Fed reporters, Gina Smalik, who's based in New York. And she has the important job, among many other things, of writing our economic research wrap every week uh, for Bloomberg. And recently, she wrote about poor man's monetary policy. Tell us about that, Gina. Right. So this is this idea from Citigroup's Willem Boyder uh, in a recent research note that central banks are not going to have a lot of ammunition at their disposal come the next recession. And the point he's making here is that rates are still pretty low around the world. The U.S. is obviously a little bit above zero, but you look at euro area and Japan and they're still sort of lingering below. And so come the next crisis, the central banks are really going to be forced to rely heavily on their balance sheet, sort of tinkering around the edges of composition and size, and aren't going to have a lot of the tools that have traditionally been at their disposal, which, you know, most centrally includes rate cuts. And I guess what's interesting about this, and you mentioned a few other uh, bits of research, including the recent paper that, that Larry Summers um, co-wrote and uh, produced for the Brookings Institute conference, that it's sort of this debate about not having enough ammunition for the next crisis is kind of clashing is sort of colliding with debates around what the best economic policy is right now in the US and the sort of more progressive thinkers um, talking about modern monetary theory and wanting to run big 
bigger deficits, you know, for, in, in a sense for political reasons. But you've got economists saying you might want to do it uh, to help prevent the next crisis as well. Is that that must be kind of interesting for you to see that the sort of everyone's coming for coming to the same conclusion, which is we need to borrow more, just at a time when. I would have thought that President Trump was already borrowing quite a lot. Right. It's so interesting. These conversations are also closely interconnected. And there's, I think, this growing idea that central banks are dealing with what's called a very low neutral interest rate. So that's the one that neither stokes nor slows growth. It's really low for demographic reasons because populations are aging and people tend to save as they age. And, and that pushes the that sort of rate setting that they can achieve down a little bit. One way to get that higher is by running a bigger budget deficit, especially if it can, if doing so results in sort of infrastructure spending and other things that can raise the productive capacity of an economy. But that's hard to do in a world where you already have really high debt to GDP ratios. And so I think there are all these conversations around what does fiscal responsibility mean in the world of 2019? And what is it going to mean come the next recession? Like how much can we play with this stuff around the edges? And at what point do we push ourselves to a point where we're just overextended on this fiscal front? And I think that conversation is really reaching a fever pitch in places like the U.S. now. And I don't think it's going to fade in any way come the next crisis. I think this is this is a debate that we're going to have with us for the foreseeable future. And I suspect we are going to be talking about it many times. Thanks very much, Gina Smalik. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. Please join us next week for another episode about the forces shaping the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website or app and wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so it can reach more listeners. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on my Twitter handle at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Craig Torres. It was produced by Magnus Henriksen and edited by Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Craig's original article on this topic appeared in Bloomberg Business Week. It was edited by Ben Holland and Christina Lindblad. Special thanks to Larry Summers. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts. Bloomberg Podcasts.